One night in college, Annie Morehauser went to a gathering on a beach. That's where she fell in love. I got hooked on glass. It's sort of like a drug for me. She fell in love with glass blowing. This was in California in the late 1970s. Uh, at a full moon at night, it was gorgeous, and someone was um, brought a portable glass furnace to the beach for a ceramic firing. And I was mesmerized, and I thought, oh, my God, I can do that. <laughs> you know, you know, like a, a bug bit me, and I had to keep doing it. That night on the beach changed Annie's life. She decided right then and there that glass blowing was going to be how she made her living. But that's not the kind of thing you just know how to do. Annie had to learn it. She took classes and practiced her technique. When she graduated from college in 1979, Annie got a day job at a gallery in Santa Cruz, and she made glassware in her off hours. I'd work at night and on the weekends in my own little studio. I shared it with a painter because mm-hmm. I couldn't afford a whole one. And I would go to a glass shop here that threw away stuff. And I would get the freebies, you know, that they threw away. I'd have my little truck and I'd go get it. And so uh, at that time, I was making more one-of-a-kind platters and bowls. And mm-hmm. I was selling them to museum shops like the Walker Art Museum and the Philadelphia Art Museum. At this point, Annie was selling her stuff, which was really exciting, but she had no business expertise whatsoever. Art came naturally to her, not finance. Annie wanted to make a name for herself and keep producing and selling her glassware in bigger and bigger batches. In short, she wanted to start a business. She knew that in the glassblowing world, the only way to do that was to get to this one nationwide trade show. Annie had to be there, in person, to get her pieces in front of the buyers from high-end department stores looking to stock for the holidays. There was only one problem. The trade show was in upstate New York. Annie was in Santa Cruz. It was going to cost her hundreds of dollars to get there, and she didn't have anything close to that kind of money. Luckily for Annie, credit cards had just started letting people take out cash advances. And it was like, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know any better. I, I'd been making my $13 payment every <laughs> month for a $3,000 bill, not understanding it wasn't uh, paying anything down. Mm. And I was like, well, that's okay. That's what it says. <laughs> not realizing they were racking up interest in the credit. Didn't know how to read the statement. I was so naive. So Annie went to the bank to get 300 bucks. I just went to the teller and I handed over that credit card and said, you know, I'd like to get some cash against this card. And she looked at me. She was a very stern woman, and she looked at the card, looked at me, and then she took out the largest pair of scissors I've ever seen. In fact, I don't know where you get them that big and not be garden shears, and she just chopped it up into little pieces. Really? It was right in front of my eyes and just say, no... No, we can't do that. In fact, we need to take your card. And you you owe this much money against it. You know, and I was like, no. (laughs) I'm John Henry, and this is Open for Business, a branded podcast from eBay and Gimlet Creative about building a business from the ground up. These days, you see a lot of flashy headlines about venture capital and angel investors infusing startups with millions of dollars. 
But as familiar as that story is, it isn't normal, not even close. According to data from the Small Business Administration, less than 1% of startups get seed money from either VCs or angels. We don't usually get to hear much about how those remaining 99% of people find the capital they need to launch their companies, which makes financing especially hard because most small business owners don't actually come from a business background. Like Annie, we get hooked on an idea and then figure out the rest. Today on the show, we're getting real about how regular people get the money they need to start and sustain their businesses. Maxing out a personal credit card is one end of the spectrum, and being handed a blank check by an outside investor is another. We're bringing you stories complete with all the nitty-gritty financial details from entrepreneurs who represent something in the middle. After the bank teller cut up Annie's credit card, Annie had a last-minute sale and borrowed the rest of the money she needed to get to the trade show. And when she got there, Byers ordered more than $10,000 in her glassware right there on the spot. It was her big break. Today, you can find Annie's company, Annie Glass, in Bloomingdale's, Neiman Marcus, and Bergdorf Goodman. She's even got pieces in the Smithsonian. And that bank that cut up her credit card? The real irony is that that's my bank. They gave me $2 million later, (laughs) years later. So yeah, most of us are more like Annie than Mark Zuckerberg when it comes to starting a business, and that's okay. Not every business is really meant to have outside capital or angel investors or venture capitalists. This is Barry Maltz. He's an entrepreneur, investor, business consultant, and author of How to Get Unstuck, 25 Ways to Get Your Business Growing Again. Barry says that all the hype about million-dollar fundraising rounds isn't just unrealistic, it's actually counterproductive. I mean, the fantasy always is, I'm going to have a business idea, I'm going to write on the back of a napkin, and then someone's going to give me $5 billion for that, right? Uh, and, that, and that's going to happen inside of a week. But chances are, you're not going to be one of those people. Uh, in fact, sometimes I really believe that those examples actually hurt the entrepreneur because that's what they think they're supposed to be doing. That's what they think the model is, and it just isn't. Barry's advice to anyone starting a new business? Bootstrap it. In some ways, the lore and romanticism around bootstrapping is similar to the glamour around raising huge sums of money. If you've talked to a business owner who truly bootstrapped, they tend to be really proud of it. And that's because it's super hard. Technically, to bootstrap a business means to refuse any bank loans or outside investment. It means using as much of your own capital as possible to start your company, and then only growing that company when you have the profits to do so. That's how Shad Van Leeuwen did it. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Take it easy, bud. You guys got to witness a very rare cash transaction that happens here. Shad owns Speed Addicts, a motorcycle parts store. He does almost all of his sales online, and he works out of a small warehouse on the outskirts of L.A. Half of this place is packaging supplies. And then most of what you'll see are helmets because that's our bread and butter. So, So lots of helmets on the shelves here returns. The thing that feels uh, weird about visiting Shad's warehouse is that one, it's tiny, and two, there's barely any inventory on the shelves. And yet, he's selling almost two and a half million dollars of motorcycle parts a year. That's because Shad uses a business model called dropshipping. Here's how dropshipping works. Shad lists motorcycle parts on the Speed Addicts website. 
Once someone buys an item from Speed Addicts, Shad pays a wholesaler to ship the part directly to the buyer. It keeps overhead low and means Shad has cash in hand before he even goes to his wholesalers. But dropshipping isn't perfect. There's lots of competition, the margins are razor thin, and if you don't calculate them correctly, you risk losing money. Shad has been refining his dropshipping model for the last 15 years. The first wholesaler Shad ever worked with was his dad, who runs a motorcycle parts wholesale business. He started selling for his dad while he was still in high school. I would, I'd get my, my dad's company to run the credit card for the sale. And I remember specifically my first couple sales and taking credit cards over the phone between classes at high school on my Nokia phone that had Snake on it, you know, the Snake game. And so I remember being, like the bells ringing and I was somehow managed to sound professional enough as like the bells ringing and it's like time to go to class. Dropshipping is what allowed Shad to bootstrap his company. Because of the dropship model where I could list a product that I didn't actually have in my possession on eBay, sell it, collect the money, and then pay my supplier. I never took a dime or went after money in the beginning because I didn't have to. What I find fascinating about that is that typically when you think of financing, uh, it's in the lens of people giving you money. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was like finding a creative way to keep your costs low and so that, in a way, was a type of financing because it eliminated or at least reduced that barrier to entry. Like, you didn't need the money up front. Is that right? For many years, yeah. This brings us to lesson number one. Here's Barry again. The most important thing uh, in any business is to get paying customers. Once you have paying customers, it gives you uh, capital, actually, from your customers, which is the best source of capital. Customers are your best source of capital. If you can, find a way to create a sustainable business by selling your product or service first. Then use those profits to fund and grow your business. Prove there's a market for your idea, something people are willing to pay for, before you even think about taking outside funding. This might seem obvious, but putting it into practice can force you to get creative in how you think about your business. Ask yourself, what is the most bare-bones version of your company that you can possibly launch? For Shad, that's been dropshipping ever since he started out. And this is working well for him. Until recently. A couple years ago, Shad learned that bootstrapping could only get him so far. It took watching a competitor thrive for him to realize that he wanted to scale his company. I've been working way too many hours. And then I saw that one of my competitors sold for $300 million. And... I was so bummed. I, I saw these guys like my age sell this company, and that's like what I, that, that was my dream. That is my dream. I want to, I want a company. I don't necessarily even want to sell it. I want a company. I want to be one of the players. They're obviously one of the players, and they accomplished this huge thing. And it was like, yeah, it, it hit me pretty hard. After that moment, Shad spent a year deciding on his next move. He hired a consultant and drew up a business plan for the first time. He decided the first step was to overhaul Speed Addict's website. And in order to do that, he'd have to borrow money for the first time. I started going, I have a financial advisor. I have X amount of dollars in the stock market. I'm betting on these other companies. Like, why am I so scared to put this money on myself? And so there's been a turning point where 
I'm confident in my abilities. I'm confident in this business plan. Let's do it. You know, let's make some bets. And that's what that's where we're at today. The difference between taking money now versus 15 years ago is that now Shad has a proven concept and he knows how to run a business. He knows exactly how much money he needs and what he wants to spend it on. Just a few months ago, Shad took out $50,000 of debt to hire a developer and redesign his website from scratch. For a company with two and a half million in sales each year, Shad could have taken out way more, but he didn't. Here's Barry. I always say that too much money actually makes you stupid. You should only try to utilize as much money as you need. It's not borrowing as much money or getting as much investors as you can. That's really the secret sauce of running a successful business. Lesson number two, wait as long as possible to get outside funding. And when you finally do, be strategic. Don't be tempted to take as much money as you can and decide what to do with it later. Be methodical about what money you actually need in order to accomplish specific goals. But for most people, having too much money isn't something they have to worry about. Usually, it's just the opposite. After the break, we've got a story about where to turn when you've got no savings, no credit, and no connections. All you've got is a bunch of food allergies and a million dollar idea. Welcome back to the show. At around the same time Shad was first running speed addicts out of his college dorm room, Erin McKenna had just moved to New York City to pursue her lifelong dream of working at a fashion magazine. But she hated it. She hated sitting at a desk all day, and on top of that, Erin had just been diagnosed with a ton of food allergies. She couldn't eat soy, dairy, or gluten. These days, that's not that big of a problem, but back then, it meant giving up something Erin really loves. Sweets. I was really unhappy on a daily basis, and I didn't have any friends in New York, and I was really missing sweets at the same time. And so I, at night, kind of to keep myself company and to get my mind off my life, I would just bake for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all, like, really weird things I would never share with anybody because they were just like— <laughs> Is this before, like, the all the gluten-free trends? Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody knew how to say— gluten-free. They thought it was glutton-free, and they thought it was like a <laughs> diet product. Like, it's diet. It's glutton-free. Get two. Get five. Like, what kind of stuff <laughs> are you It was kind of like what you expect gluten-free and vegan to be, like, just, like, lumpy lumps <laughs> of sweetness. <laughs> that for me, I was like, well, I guess it's okay. I'll eat it. Erin <laughs> spent eight months baking cookies, cakes, and brownies in her own kitchen just for herself using random ingredients that she'd find in health food stores in New York City, like chickpea flour instead of regular flour and agave nectar instead of sugar. One day, Erin went to a birthday party for a friend's baby, and that's where she realized she wasn't alone in her food allergies. It was his first birthday party, and she said, Oh, everybody, I'm sorry. Um, I hope this cake doesn't taste weird. It's a baby cake. 
Um, and I was like, what's a baby cake? And she's like, well, there's like certain things you're supposed to avoid in the first year, like eggs and dairy and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, oh, my God, do you know what somebody should do is open a bakery called Baby Cakes and make it free from all these allergies for all these kids out running around? And then um, I just thought it was the best idea. Such a good idea that despite having no formal cooking experience, no business experience at all, and no money, Erin decided she was going to start that bakery. And she was going to call it Baby Cakes NYC. This is when she got really serious about perfecting those recipes in her kitchen. She was no longer working at the fashion job she hated. She was waitressing at night and using all her pay on ingredients. She was driven, passionate, and she'd even identified a market for potential customers. But she was missing one major thing. So nothing ever scared me. But money was the one thing that I'd ever really experienced a block with. Mm. Um, and Talk about that. I, well, I come from a family of 12. Mm. Um, we all got jobs early and as early as possible. Um, we went off to college with, like, my mom gave me 100 bucks, and I was just, like, psyched. <laughs> um, and you, we just figured life out on our own. So uh, something that came with that, was I had always had a problem asking my mom for money because I knew she was under a lot of pressure already with, you know, all of the family finances. And um, so I wasn't in the practice of even asking my own mother for money. Right. Um, so money to me was always, it was like up to me to find it or up to me to, to uh, earn it. Erin knew she had a lot to learn about finding the money she'd need to start a business. Remember, this was back in 2003. She didn't even have a computer at the time, so she'd have to go to the library and read about how to finance a small business. She found a mentor through the Small Business Administration, and that's how she came up with her first business plan. She estimated she'd need $100,000 to get the space, equipment, and permits she needed to get started. And so she applied for a bank loan. So I put in my application. It takes like two weeks to, re- they take about two weeks to review. The longest two weeks of your life. Yeah. Right? I remember those. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Erin thought she was in great shape to get the loan. And while she was waiting for the loan to be approved, she happened upon the perfect spot for her store. It was in an up and coming neighborhood in Manhattan. It was way cheaper than she'd even budgeted. She was feeling so confident that she was going to get the loan that she went ahead and signed the lease. Everything felt like it was coming together, until it wasn't. I believe it was maybe five days later, I got the call that I was turned down for the loan. Oh, no. I had been in the grocery store grabbing ingredients because I was going home to, you know, make another batch of things. Because I was always refining things, like teaspoon by teaspoon. And I saw that I had a missed call and voicemail, and um, yeah, and I picked it up and... It was really, it was short. It was like less than a minute long. Ouch. And we're calling in regards to this application, you know. It was like so clinical for him. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I was like, do you realize <laughs> <laughs> you just delivered the worst news of my life? And I felt dizzy and <laughs> a little bit sick. My whole, like everything just started to like, I don't know. It felt like things started to come in on me. When she was denied for that loan, Aaron was left with no choice but to do the thing she dreaded most ask people for money. I didn't want people to think that I was grubbing for money all the time um, because I, because I had spent my whole life trying not to be that person. 
And not ever asking for money is just like one of my purposes in life. (laughs) Erin started asking for money anyway because she had to. And she had to do it in a way that was totally new to her. Finding investors and selling them equity. Equity is ownership in a company. She'd go from meeting to meeting, investor to investor with a bunch of baked goods and a printout about why her bakery was a good bet. But these were not the type of people you might picture when you hear the word investor. They were friends of friends, people she'd met through her waitressing job, like a random vegan Canadian hockey player who said he'd throw in a few grand. And like Phil, her tax guy. He he had mentioned that he had may might want to invest if I ever was taking investors. And it came to the time where I actually had to ask him if he would. And he was he wasn't certain. And I had to keep pushing it. And for me, I'm the type of person like I don't want people to feel uncomfortable. Yep. I'm I'm like oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, don't worry, you know, I'll find it somewhere else, don't worry about it. But I had to, like, hold that back and um, and just pursue it. And then he finally said, yes, I'll put it in 12000 And I met him in Grand Central on his lunch break, and we were sit- sitting across from each other, and he was holding this check, <laughs> and he was sweating. Wow. <laughs> and he's, he told me, he's like, my wife really doesn't want me to give this to you. And I, I was like, oh, my God, now there's a wife who's not wanting me to do this. I'm so screwed. And I, I really had to hold myself back there um, from telling him it was going to be okay, just keep the money. Right. And I, was, I just said, I really think it's a good investment. I think you should give me the money. Everything's going to be okay. And... And then he literally, he had it on the table and I had to like pull it (laughs) away from him. And I like ran to the bank and cashed that (laughs) so fast because I'm like, he is going to put a stop payment on this right when he gets to the office. In the end, Erin managed to get the capital she needed by selling 18% of the bakery to a handful of investors. The average investment was about as much as Phil's, $12,000. After bootstrapping, there are two main ways to finance your business. One is trying to get a bank loan. And the other is courting investors. Aaron did both. And both have their own risks and costs. Bank loans are a high-risk way to get capital because if your business fails, you're still on the hook to pay the money back no matter what. But, and this may sound counterintuitive, even considering the interest you have to pay back on a bank loan, in the long run, it's actually a much cheaper way to fund your business. And that's because giving up a piece of your business by selling equity cuts into your future profits forever. Although you don't have to return that money, you do have to return it if and when your business is successful. Barry Maltz. They're actually taking a part of your business, so that could end up being 100 or 200% or 500% actually return for that investor. So selling equity in your business, although you don't have to pay it back, actually in the end, if you're successful, is very expensive. If you fail, then it's very cheap because you don't have to pay it back. Compared to a bank loan, selling equity is a low-risk, high-cost form of capital. Sure, you don't have to pay it back if your business fails, but if it succeeds, you're giving away your profits in perpetuity. And that's our third lesson. When it comes to financing your business, you have to carefully weigh the risks and costs of the types of funding available to you. 
Erin grew the company and recently renamed it Erin McKenna's Bakery. She now has three ranches, in Manhattan, in the very same perfect spot she founded 11 years ago, in LA, and in Disney Springs, Florida. She also has a whole line of cookbooks and she sells her vegan, gluten-free products online. Today, Erin's business employs 75 people and is worth about $6 million. Turns out, she did feel a favor when she cashed this $12,000 check because right after she opened, lots of people wanted in. People who were coming to me after I opened, because we got all this great press after I opened. Mm-hmm. I was on Martha Stewart within six months and wow. then Best of New York. And um, and then people were coming out of the woodwork trying to give me money. And I sure. was like, hell no. <laughs> I was like, you slept on that. No, thank you. <laughs> Go into the corner. No, thank you. <laughs> Did you return their money? Uh, oh, I had someone send me a check, which I returned. Bam. Look at that. <laughs> One final takeaway from Aaron's story, and this is something that feels personal to me, is that there was nothing in Aaron's background or her work history that made her a shoe-in for success. She had to learn how to finance her business on her own, which was really, really hard, but also totally worth it. Everyone is like, oh my God, there are sleepless nights and, and it's so exhausting and this and that. And they tell you the horrors of it, which is there are horrors, but they leave out like the um, unexplainable, like Mm. beautiful part. You don't know it until you experience it. Like you get into it and it's hard. Yes. And you're suffering. Yes. But you would never do anything else. Mm. I never, um, I never felt, I never dreaded work. I haven't dreaded work since the day I opened the bakery. That's amazing. I've never dreaded going in. One, one thing that we share in common with our stories is like that coming from a bigger family and mm-hmm. growing up broke. And yeah. like, I just remember in those days it feeling like a curse. And oh, now yeah. looking back on it, it was totally like a the blessing. best thing in your yeah. whole life. Yeah. Cause you like, you know how to be poor now. Like, yeah. you know how to make it work. <laughs> I'm not afraid of it at all. <laughs> I know how to do it. Like, I know how to like just make my bills and then, and then whatever is <laughs> left over is for you to eat. Exactly. And like, maybe go to the movies. And it's fine. It's like, you know, anytime you have anything in excess of that, it's like... Pressure makes diamonds. Yeah. So to recap today's lessons on how to finance your business, lesson number one, if at all possible, bootstrap your business in the beginning. If you can, find a way to create a sustainable business by selling your product or service first. Then, use those profits to fund and grow your business. And remember, customers are your best source of capital. Lesson number two, when you're seeking outside funding, take only exactly what you need. Don't forget Barry Moltz's motto, too much money makes you stupid. And finally, lesson number three, weigh your options. Every form of funding has its own risks and costs. Know which is best for your business, even though sometimes you don't get to decide. That's our show. To learn more, check out ebay.com slash open for business. 
Open for Business is a co-production of eBay and Gimlet Creative. We were produced this week by Francis Harlow, RMW, Nicole Wong, Caitlin Boguki, Abby Ruzika, and Grant Irving, with creative direction from Nazanin Rafsanjani. We were mixed this week by Zach Schmidt. Our theme song is by Wolfpack. Thanks so much to Christine Driscoll. And a very special thank you to Victor Chiquero, Eric Van Leeuwen, Steve Dennis, Mike Michalowicz, and all the folks at Kiva who helped us out. Next week on Open for Business, what to do when it feels like everything's falling apart and how to rebuild once it does. The, one of the doubts is, am I just, am I on the deck of the Titanic? You know, the ship is sinking, nothing's going to stop that. And am I just like rearranging deck chairs? We'll hear from two entrepreneurs about how to survive failure. That's coming up next week on Open for Business. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Open for Business on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps people discover our show. I'm John Henry. Thanks for listening.